You're 28 years old. You have a wife and a child. Life has taken a few weird turns already, but you're used to the weirdness and do your best to ride it out. Until recently, you lived in Santa Rosa, California, but life just simply moved too slow there. You need action. You need drama. You need the weirdness deep in your soul. You need to write. You move to San Francisco, California, where you expect to find all of the above. There's very little money, like there always is, but things are different now with a wife and a child. You sell an article to a magazine every once in a while, but it's not enough for a comfortable life. You know you have to do something. You are already living a raucous life, full of copious amounts of alcohol with the occasional dip into drugs. You want to prove yourself, prove that you are capable of reaching the dream you set out for yourself. Then you write an article for the nation. It's one you're rather proud of. It's called Motorcycle Gangs, Losers and Outsiders. It's about the Hell's Angels. And this is the beginning of a great book and a crazy career. Greetings and welcome. You are listening to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and the gunzo. I'm your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and today we're digging into Hunter S. Thompson's novel, Hell's Angels. In Hell's Angels, the strange and terrible saga of the outlaw motorcycle gangs, Hunter S. Thompson chronicles a two-year period of the Hell's Angels, focusing on the San Francisco and Oakland chapters. He digs into their backstory, their lives, their parties, and attitudes and philosophies, getting deep into the bone marrow of what they were and represented in the early 60s. At times, he becomes one of them, riding with them and participating in their craziness. At other times, he is forced to pull himself away and reevaluate what he is seeing and experiencing. Finally, things spin out of control, but still... Hunter Thompson manages to chronicle it all into a nonfiction novel that at times reads like a fictional one. Though not his first venture into gonzo journalism, this book shows the increasing of the blurring lines between reality and fiction, and how easily it is to color outside the lines. Quote, The greatest mania of all is passion and I am a natural slave to passion. The balance between my brain and my soul and my body is as wild and delicate as the skin of a Ming vase." Hunter Stockton Thompson was born on July 18, 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky. His mother Virginia, a librarian, said that Hunter was born a night owl, He would never sleep at the same time as his two younger siblings, James and Davison, something that would follow him for the rest of his life. She was proud of him, in particular about his charm, which was such that children from the neighborhood would wait on the porch of the Thompson house in the morning so they could walk with him to school. Later, his wife of 17 years, Sandy, would say of Hunter 
He was angry. He was charming. He was a lot of trouble. And more anger and trouble would come after his father died of a neuromuscular disease when Hunter was 14 years old. It wasn't easy for his mother to raise three boys full of testosterone. She would turn to gin to ease the pain and stress of life. Hunter hated that his mother drank. Despite the fact that he was getting into alcohol himself around this time, a passion and a curse that would linger with him throughout his life. Trying her best, Virginia would bring books home that she and the boys would read together, books like Huck Finn and White Fang. The fact that Virginia made her boys read most certainly influenced Hunter to become a writer instead of a criminal, considering the path he was going down in his teenage years. Even at 17 years old, Hunter had an intuition about the greatness that would eventually follow and would therefore make carbon copies of everything he wrote. Around this same time, he wrote a third prize essay for the Athenium magazine called Open Letter to the Youth of Our Nation, which any Hunter S. Thompson fan should do themselves the service to read. Hunter was part of a literary society called the Athenium. The club had a history going back 125 years at that point, but it was more of a social club than a literary club. The men would meet up every Saturday, all wearing suits and ties. They would read out loud something they had written and would provide each other with critique. It would last for a few hours, but as the hours drew by, the ties and jackets would come off and then they would all go out to get drunk and raise hell. Most of his friends in the club were upper class and knew that even if they got busted doing things they shouldn't, they would get out of it. It wasn't so for Hunter. Unfortunately, Hunter got into more trouble than his wallet could get him out of, and with a third annotation to his record, he was given the choice between juvenile prison or the military. Hunter chose the Air Force, which is where his writing career would begin. Unsurprisingly, Hunter wasn't a good fit in the military. It was an unnatural and all-too-structured place for someone like him. He would drink too much, get drunk, and wind up in trouble. All of this pushing the boundaries of the rules as far as he could were all in hopes of receiving a dishonorable discharge. He didn't care how he got out. He just wanted to get out. But his luck would change when the sports editor on the base was busted urinating on the street. The base found themselves desperate for a new sports writer, and Hunter was just plain old desperate so it seemed like a perfect fit. In addition to being the sports writer for the base, he also found a job with the local civilian newspaper going under the pseudonym Thorne Stockton, earning a few extra bucks and more experience. After being discharged, honorably, Thompson moved to New York for a while. There he enrolled at the School of General Studies at Columbia and took a few courses, but they didn't amount to much. After struggling for a while, drinking too much, and eating too little, he found a job as a copy boy at Time magazine. They specified that they did not want any aspiring writers as they didn't want anyone who would nag on their editors in order to get something published. Although Hunter managed to fool them into believing that he wasn't a writer, the job didn't last long as Hunter would continue to drink heavily and would often mouth off to his superiors. Around the same time, 
Thompson finished the first draft of his first book, Prince Jellyfish, and moved to Middletown, Manhattan. Little is known about the Prince Jellyfish novel, except that The Guardian described it as an autobiographical novel about a boy from Louisville going to the big city and struggling against the dunces to make his way. A short excerpt would later be published in Songs of the Doomed, but at the time, the book was rejected by a number of literary agents. Still jumping from job to job, living a tumultuous life, Hunter got hired as a general assignment reporter and he covered a lot of sports because he had always had a particular interest and knack for it. That job ended when Hunter kicked and broke the candy machine in the building. Hunter was angry that he couldn't get a candy bar out, though he had paid for it, and began kicking it. He broke the machine, but only took the bar he had paid for. But then others came and ate all the other candy bars for free. Hunter was fired. Being a restless soul and tired of the states, Hunter sent an application to the San Juan Star in Puerto Rico in an attempt to get out of the country. The magazine accepted him, and seven days after, Sandy and Hunter became a pair. He left for Puerto Rico. After writing numerous articles for various magazines and papers, Hunter wrote his second novel, The Rum Diary, in the early 1960s while in Puerto Rico. He considered the novel in the same vein as Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, only set in Puerto Rico. The book wouldn't be published before 1998, making Hell's Angels Hunter S. Thompson's official debut novel. Quote, I have no taste for either poverty or honest labor, so writing is the only recourse left for me. End quote. It was 1965. Hunter S. Thompson was living in a typical San Francisco apartment with his wife Sandy and their baby boy, Juan Fitzgerald Thompson. Juan's middle name comes from F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of Hunter's favorite writers. The apartment was long and narrow and only had one bedroom. The bedroom was converted into an office where Hunter could write, while the living room served as Sandy and Juan's bedroom. They had a roof over their heads, but it was far from living an easy life. In order to have a phone line, Hunter had drilled holes through the ceiling and tapped into the phone line in the empty apartment above them. This way they had a phone, for a while at least. But the turning point was just around the corner. After the article concerning the Hell's Angels and the National was published, Ian Ballantyne reached out to Hunter and offered him a book contract based on it. Hunter would follow the Hell's Angels and chronicle their lives and his experiences with them. He would write from within the story, essentially being a part of the story, and Ian Ballantyne would become Hunter's editor. Thompson wasn't too happy with the amount he was offered, but accepted it nonetheless. It was $6,000 that he desperately needed, and the way he saw it, at least he had some money now. It's no secret that Thompson had a strong predilection for the crazier elements of life, including alcohol, drugs, and heavy partying. 
This, of course, did not mix well with the two-year-old, and Thompson therefore pulled away from domestic life and fully delved into the book. Once, when Sandy complained about him not being present enough, he told her that Juan was her novel, implying that he had his baby, which he had to work on. With money and the subject of his research came a shift in his daily routine. Most of Juan's waking hours, Thompson would spend sleeping after partying all night at numerous bars or being out of town. It was around this time that Hunter tried acid for the first time, which would not be a good experience for Sandy nor his son. Hunter had befriended the members of Jefferson Airplane, and they all wound up in the small San Francisco apartment one evening. They dropped acid, but the band left, and Sandy and then one-year-old Juan was suddenly alone with Hunter who had a head full of acid. Hunter told Sandy that he wanted his gun and for her to fetch it, but she instead hid it and told him that she would not give him the weapon. Hunter became angry and told her that if she did not do as he requested, he would throw his boot through the big plate glass window of the apartment. Sandy was understandably worried about what Hunter would do if he had his gun, and therefore she refused to get it. Hunter held up his part of the threat, and with a loud explosion, the window shattered when Hunter's boot flew through it. Sandy, terrified and angry with a crying infant in the room, scratched Hunter across the face, drawing blood. This seemed to jolt him out of his trance. He left the apartment and drove his motorcycle to a friend's house in Sonoma. Sandy rang the friend a couple of hours later to ask him if Hunter was there and was told that he was acting in a way he'd never seen Hunter act before. He was sitting around the dinner table coloring with the couple's daughters. Even though his life was becoming more and more unruly, the book was coming together. The research was going well. He was getting a lot of material and was finally living the life he wanted to live. Hunter identified with the Hells Angels to a certain extent. They were outcasts and somewhat victims of society, which he felt he was as well. Similar to other writers at the time, like Ken Kesey, he saw the angels as a kind of emblem of honor and rebellion, which made him want to dig even further into their lives and lifestyle, which in turn made the book more captivating. Hunter befriended some of the angels and they would visit him at his apartment. They would bring their girlfriends or wives, which they referred to as their mamas, but would be respectful and would even keep the noise levels down for baby Juan. In this period, Thompson met fellow writer Ken Kesey at a radio show. They got to talking and Kesey asked if Hunter couldn't arrange it so he and his friends could meet the angels. At the time, Ken Kesey was working on his novel, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and had through adventures we will most likely explore further on another episode of the show, stolen a large batch of acid. Hunter arranged a meeting, which would later become the infamous acid party that Hunter would write about in the book. But the short and ugly of it is that the angels drank heavily and then began going hard into the acid. They got more and more drunk more and more detached from reality and more and more violent, something that cultivated in a horrible gang rape of a young woman. 
Hunter recorded much of the party on his portable handheld recorder to facilitate the research process, and one of the recordings would include the rape. This experience seriously disturbed Hunter, who felt guilty and partially responsible for what had occurred as he had been the one to bring the angels to the party. Later, Thompson would lend these tapes to writer Tom Wolfe, who would recreate the incident vividly in his non-fiction book about Ken Kesey, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Quote, Sleep late, have fun, get wild, drink whiskey and drive fast on empty streets with nothing in mind but falling in love and not getting arrested." End quote. Towards the end of his deadline, Hunter had a lot of material, but he hadn't done as much writing as he should have. Having received $1,500 from Random House as an advance on the hardcover sales of the book, Hunter bought himself a BSA 650 motorcycle, and began riding more, drinking more, and doing more dope, which limited his riding hours. Hunter loved his bike, and despite the fact that the angels made fun of it as they only considered Harley-Davidson's to be true motorcycles, Thompson found a great freedom in riding. On late nights, he would take acid and ride fast on empty roads, getting his adrenaline going in order to sit down and write. Along with riding his bike, the drinking and dropping acid, came other integral elements that would become a part of his routine, namely benzedrine and speed. Being constantly in fear of missing his deadline, he would take speed to get and keep himself going when he felt exhausted in order to finish the book. Through the writing of the book, Thompson was also beaten up by the angels. Hunter claimed, that they wanted a part of the royalties from his book sales, yet the angels claimed they only wanted a keg of beer. I guess we'll never know the truth now. A while after this incident, which he included in the book, he managed to finish in time and handed it in. The editors at Random House and Ballantyne were impressed. They liked it tremendously and only asked for minor changes to be made. They were sure they had a classic and possibly a bestseller on their hands. Hunter, on the other hand, was less sure and over a conversation, in which Hunter drank more than twenty glasses of wild turkey and was still able to walk straight afterwards, much to the disbelief of the others present, he kept repeating, We'll see. We'll see. The editors were right. Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga was published in March of 1967 to generally good reviews, and Hunter S. Thompson was touted to be a new great author to keep your eyes on. The book sold about 40,000 hardcover copies through Random House, making it a minor bestseller in 1967. It was then published in paperback by Ballantyne in 1968, and by September 1988, Twenty years later, it had gone through an incredible 29 printings and sold in the whereabouts of two million copies. But as with so many others, with money came success and ego. It was after this book that Hunter's persona, the Gonzo personality, began to take shape. 
He began wearing sunglasses at all times and the weird, sometimes Halloween-like clothes that are so synonymous with him now. He truly reveled in the persona he had created for himself and kept it going for most of his career, for better or for worse. Soon would come even wilder times for the man who would be known as the creator of gonzo journalism. Let me leave you with a final quote from Hunter S. Thompson. Life has become immeasurably better since I have been forced to stop taking it seriously. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin, and I, along with the creators of this show, ask that you please consider helping us make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Hardin, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Hardin.